Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And friend, we start the show with a sad note. Uh, former Bundesbank president Hans Tietmeyer, who was the last president of the Bundesbank before the ECB, has died at the age of 85, a statement out from uh, Bundesbank president uh, Jens Weidmann just a few moments ago. Sad. 84 is still a good life, but you're right. It's sad, and actually, usually in the Christmas period, we do get a little bit of uh, this always, always sad news when it comes to death. Um, away from sad news, Mike, and actually, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news, but you know, you were talking about the fact that we had a day off yesterday. We're still trying to figure out, and actually, I urge all of our listeners, if you like talking about Brexit, there's a great Brexit quiz on our Bloomberg.com, but uh, we're seeing as economic uncertainties may actually ratchet up in 2017, a lot more people hoarding cash. So this is according, Mike, to the British Bankers Association. And it's the first time that we saw that personal deposits growing uh, about 5% in November. I don't know whether it means that, that people are, are just a little bit concerned about their house prices and things like that or inflation. But um, it's the first time we've seen it in 11 months. And they got to pay their Christmas bills, too, you know, all the money they spent on on gifts, all the money you see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, when you say hoarding cash, I think of people putting their, um, you know, sterling coins into a, a, a tin on the dresser or something like that. Um, but You know, we have a new coin in 2017. Yeah. One, one of the, the, the probably most popular cultural stories here is that we have a new sterling coin, which I believe will be unveiled by the Bank of England 2017, March or even April of next year, that strangely looks like the euro. <laughs> it's, it's true. I've, I've seen it. Perfect timing. <laughs> well, let's ask Mark Chandler about that. He's the head of currency strategy for Brown Brothers Harriman, and he has migrated over here with us from uh, Bloomberg Surveillance on television. And uh, uh, Mark, um, is significant that the Brits are introducing a new coin this year? Actually, the larger question is, uh, what, is the pound, what happens to the pound in 2017 with uh, Brexit uh, in full flower? Supreme Court decision coming up, uh, the Article 50 trigger theoretically in March. Uh, what do you see happening? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think that's like the, one of the big surprises, of course, this year was the Brexit uh, the referendum. I still think that uh, such an important decision made by a very small uh, majority of people, less than 52%. So some big changes coming to, to the UK. And I, I think the market is getting frustrated that this idea of a soft Brexit, hard Brexit, which is what the market's really been debating about, I think uh, next year, all that changes. And it seems to me these are hair, splitting hairs, really. It's hard to see how the UK is going to be able to maintain both access to, a, to the common market and control its borders. It's that, I think the EU is right that it's not a smorgasbord type of opportunity where you just pick and choose what you want. And so I think that until this is resolved, it's hard to see how sterling has a substantial rally. 
So I'm looking at sterling still to be falling. I think that next year, as to, if I'm right about the euro going through parity, I think we could see sterling back down to those lows we saw around the flash crash, bring this down to about 114 or so, say a dime from here on the downside. Fran, I'm, I'm looking at this um, new pound coin. It looks like it's a pineapple. I mean, I what is that? <laughs> I, I think it's a Scottish emblem, but close. It's a okay. thistle. It looks a oh, little bit thistle. like a pineapple, okay. but I think it's a thistle. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll put it on social media for the, for the people that are listening to us. So you can also have a look at the new 12-sided uh, one-pound coin being unveiled next year. Mark, when you look at <laughs> currencies, right, it's very clear that volatility was largely played out in currencies in 2016 because stocks just kept on going higher. Do you think we'll follow a similar pattern in 2017? No, I think that's good because I think that what, what we have is that there's this idea that the capital markets, that letting the prices of currencies and money in general, like interest rates, move, be volatile, that means that the real economy doesn't have to be. That is that these financial instruments act as a shock absorber. And we've seen the economies become more volatile as the financial markets become less volatile. So I personally would rather see more volatility in the financial assets. So that the problem, though, with volatility in the financial assets is it implies a direction. So when we say low volatility in the stock market, what do we know? We know from some of the charts that Mike's shown before that the VIX tends to uh, go down when the stock market goes up. So we're talking about more volatility. We're talking about lower stock prices. And we're probably talking about lower bond prices if bond market volatility is going to improve. Currencies are a different story. I think that some currencies tend to be more volatile. I'd say that the dollar block, uh, Aussie, Canada, Kiwi, tend to be a bit more volatile than, say, uh, the Swiss franc. Uh, but I think that in the year ahead, we still have to be careful about the yen, which has had this big reversal this year. You know, we began at 125 or so, sold off to almost 100, and then bounced back here to 117, 118. I'm looking for dollar yen to continue to move higher. I'm looking for this to take place over the course of the first half of the year. And, but the same thing, I think, in the other major currencies. We should be expecting a little bit more volatility, not just because of a trend, but really because of these periods of consolidation after these large trends like we've just seen. We started the conversation with the pound, but you told us earlier that it is the euro is your currency of the year for 2017, that it's going to really influence what happens to a lot of the, the markets in the coming year. Yeah, so the way I sort of think of this is that the, what's going on, I think that besides this divergence between the ECB policy and Fed policy, we also have political issues. And I think for me, the, the, the key to the political issues is this wave of populism, nationalism, may begin off in Poland, Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, uh, move to the UK with the Brexit vote, the US election with the Trump election. And now we have, in Europe next year, we have several opportunities for these populist nationalists to show their hand. And I think that this nervousness, this anticipation, it keeps the, uh, keeps the euro on the defensive. And I think that this is particularly problematic because Europe has been held together by integration. And if we're seeing a, a wave of nationalism, that eats away at that integration. And so this is an existential challenge for Europe. And I think that's what keeps the euro, besides this monetary policy, this wide divergence. Investors get paid over 200 basis points right now to be long the U.S. dollar over the euro, thinking about financing it through the Germany. This is the key incentive, the key driver for the dollar, but I think that the politics are right behind it. But, Mark, aren't the politics extremely dangerous? And I don't know whether it's because we don't trust the polls, but is there a concern that actually one of the big countries, I'm thinking Italy, France, could leave the Eurozone in the next 18 months? 
oh, I don't know, about 18 months uh, to leave the Eurozone. Here's what would have to happen, right? Uh, think about um, uh, next year we get the Dutch elections first, most likely. Uh, the Dutch elections and the far-right party does seem to be pulling ahead, but the majority of the Dutch want to stay in the EU, want to stay in EMU. Then you've got uh, the French election, and there there's a long tradition of the of the center two parties uh, combining forces when faced with a uh, faced with a challenge from the National Front. Even then, I, I, I can't see how it happens in 18 months. And then, of course, in Germany, where Merkel, she might not be as popular as she was before due to her immigration policies, but it doesn't look like she has a local rival that can unseat her. So you're right that other elections, uh, like in Italy, it's possible. But even then, Italy has a, re has a constitutional ban on referendums to affect treaties. Yeah. So I think that people are jumping the gun a little bit. You know, I was around for both of the Greek crises, and many people thought Greece was going to drop mm -hmm. out. I think those uh, your London bookies were making odds at like a 7 to 1 or 12 to 1 chance that Greece was going to drop out. And I think that right. people have underestimated the political will. And that's what's Mark. so important about now. The political will is being challenged. I thought Karen was rounding off, but it really is a dollar four zero zero for the euro, which is uh, Mark Chandler's currency of the year for 2017. You think it'll go down as low as 82, 81? Not next year, but I, I've got 97 by the middle of the year. But 82 and a half is the October 2000 low. And I think we're going to head there in the, during this Obama slash Trump dollar rally. Well, when we last saw the euro that low, the rest of the world stepped in. The G20 intervened to, to prop it up. Uh, currency intervention has sort of gone the way of the dodo, but uh, does it come back? Well, it could come back, but I think that it depends on what's happening at the time. I mean, right now, it seems to me that the weakness of the euro is a good thing for Europe. It's a good thing for the world economy because this, this is how it's supposed to work. The country that's growing quicker or has stronger fundamentals gets a stronger currency, and those countries that have weaker economies get a weaker currency. That helps stimulate them. Uh, but, uh, so it depends on really what happens when we at those kind of extremes and how fast we get there. Right, but Mark, th this is kind of the point that I was thinking about, is that a weaker euro will be welcomed for a lot of the European exporting countries. Is the problem, if you want to call it a problem, is not dollar strength? Yeah, so, yeah, so exactly. So I don't think that we're at a point yet where the dollar is a, is a problem for Europe. I don't think the dollar is yet really a problem for the U.S. as long as the pace that we've seen in the recent months does not continue at this pace. So I, I'm not sure that we're at, at a point... In the, at a point in the foreseeable future where the G7 will say, we've been telling the Chinese, we've been, t we've been making these uh, high-sounding platitudes at G20 meetings that currency markets ought to determine the value of foreign exchange. That to overcome those comments with saying that, well, this time is different, we need to intervene because the dollar is getting too strong, I think it's a very high hurdle bar. I don't think we're anywhere close to that. All right. Uh, other big currency of the year, uh, perhaps in 2017, will be the Chinese yuan. Because the president-elect of the United States has said he's going after the Chinese because uh, they unfairly manipulate their currency. They obviously have been manipulating it higher, not lower, as he has suggested, uh, trying to keep a floor under it. But what happens to the U.N. in 2017? Yeah, so I think that uh, the first thing I'd say to keep in mind is that uh, when it comes to people, we, you and I talk, we want to be, uh, be honest with each other. But I think when politicians talk, they make a distinction between like declaratory policy, what they say, operational policy, what they do. And oftentimes, the U.S. presidential candidates talk tough about China. When they get into office, they realize they get presented with new information, the complexities of the relationship, and the nuances of what China is doing. And right now, I, I fully agree that China is, is, if anything, it's trying to 
strengthen its currency. It does not want the currency to fall too fast. It's keeping it relatively stable against a basket. But I have the, because I have a strong dollar view, and I'm backed on Fed raising interest rates, strength of the U.S. economy, while the Chinese economy likely to slow, and if anything, some more monetary stimulus from China, I've got the dollar RMB, which now you say is right below 7, going to about 7.20 next year. Okay, you're suggesting, Mark, that when the facts change or the facts presented to the president-elect change, he will change. What will it take for Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, who's written books called, for example, The Death of China, who has clearly on this show also said he believes China is cheating because they have a surplus? Yeah, this is a, is a good point you raise. And for me, the challenge as an observer is really – is really trying to figure out which of these voices within the Trump administration are really going to carry the day. Uh, I first got involved in politics when Henry Kissinger was a national securities advisor, and I think Will Rogers was at the Secretary of State, and yet it was Henry Kissinger that was really running the show. So it really depends not just on who the formal appointments are, but where that power really lies. And it's, it's not clear to me where it's, how it's going to play out. One thing, though, is clear to me, and even though Trump has said that he'll declare China a currency manipulator on day one in office, I would not hold your breath for that. That is to say that the Treasury Department has a has a quantitative list of factors, and they say that China only meets one of those three factors. And so whatever brush the Trump administration says that China is a currency market manipulator, that same brush could be, could be used to tar many other countries, perhaps including Japan. Well, uh, very quickly, uh, what does it mean if they designate them a currency manipulator? Yeah, so there's two two parts of it. One is China would have to – whoever we cite as a currency manipulator would have to have uh, negotiations with the U.S. But more importantly, how it affects, like, equity investors is that U.S. companies could then sue China to get uh, – for their grievances that China's, China's manipulated the currency, taking X percentage dollars from them. How do they respond? They can sue them. And so I think that – it just opens it, up another Before the World Trade Organization? Uh, I think there might be even separate judicial uh, like tribunals set up for this. I don't think it's fully just at the WTO. All right. Mark Chandler from Brown Brothers Herman. Thanks for joining us this morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Tony Crescenzi is PIMCO's uh, market strategist, portfolio manager. He's uh, come home for Christmas uh, all the way from Newport Beach uh, to Brooklyn and uh, and points here in Manhattan. <laughs> we thank you for stopping by this morning. Uh, your latest note intrigued me because um, everybody talked about the taper tantrum. Uh, it, was, it was a huge impact on the markets when the Fed suggested it might uh, raise rates and did not. Uh, might taper and, and did not. Uh, now you're calling what we're seeing in the bond markets a Trump tantrum. But when you use those words, is is it's not the same effect, is it? It's a lot different. Uh, in 2013, there was this fear of withdrawal of stimulus, the ending of quantitative easing, the bond buying that the Fed had engaged in, buying th several trillion dollars of securities. This tantrum is a little different. It relates to Trumponomics and more traditional factors that affect the bond market, such as growth and inflation. The markets think that growth, which had has been subdued at around 2% or so, inflation also subdued, uh, would um, might pick up toward the old normal. I mean, the, the new normal for growth had been around 2%, uh, but the markets think that it could pick up. The question is whether it will pick up 
permanently in the trajectory move up toward the old normal. We're suspect, and the bond market, in fact, is, while many are talking about the Dow 20,000 and all the optimism, look at where the bond market's priced for yields in the year 2020. Looking at short-term instruments, uh, difficult for anyone to... Uh, the average person to to see, but we in the bond market know that uh, the market participants are priced for the federal funds rate, the Fed's policy rate, which is today at about a half percent, to move up to just 2% in 2020. That's about half of what is normal for a neutral rate, where the Fed's neither pressing on the gas or the brakes historically. So the markets still believe that growth will be subdued over the longer run. So while there has been a Trump tantrum, it's been relatively subdued in the sense that the markets are still priced for a very benign, shallow path on interest rates looking forward. Tony, first of all, congratulations on your greeting. Hi, Tony. Um, I wanted to send you a, a Bloomberg message through the terminal. And as a greeting, I have, you are only <laughs> as good as your last trade. Correct. I love that. I've used What's that since the 1990s on my Bloomberg terminal. And mm. it served you well. So yes. what is your best trade for 2017? Well, uh, for one, it's great news that bond yields have increased f uh, for bond investors because starting yield is the major determinant of future returns. The yield on the Barclays aggregate, which uh, for those who don't know, it's similar to watching the S&P 500. It's the main barometer by which uh, many bond managers are judged against, although there are a lot of them these days. The Barclays aggregate is yielding about two and three quarters percent. That's up a percentage point from about six weeks ago. In other words, uh, investors, as I said, uh, can now expect, th with the idea that starting yield is the major determinant of future returns, about two and three quarters in a passive strategy, but bond managers like PIMCO historically earn alpha and earn something above that, and we historically have earned about 100 basis points more than that. So in bond investors are looking at returns in the high threes now and even near four on average going forward. So staying invested in bonds is one of the important points. It's, uh, many are worried about rising yields, but as I, as I said, um, higher yields are good for one. And secondly, one can't try to market time the diversification benefits of bonds. It's like getting in a car and saying, well, today I don't need car insurance. I'll take the risk. Uh, it's, it's not a wise thing to do. So if investors want to buy equities, if they want to take more risk because they feel the economic outlook is better than it was, uh, Owning bonds, of course, enables them to get in the car and drive and take those risks. So uh, uh, it's good to have that anchor. So staying invested in bonds, being overweight on credit, and also being uh, – but, but by being somewhat cautious and leaving some dry powder is another factor. And also by um, simply uh, – well, staying invested is probably the biggest thing I could say. There are a lot of little details, but I've talked too long about things things to buy, but uh, we can talk about that if you want. Well, well, I have to follow up. Uh, by the way, John Tucker points out it's the Bloomberg Barclays Index, uh, so we have to do our own shameless Correct. plug here. Very so uh, Tony's writing that down. He won't make that mistake Never again. again. <laughs> <laughs> but how do I know? I mean, you don't have to go into every detail of every bond, but, it, okay, you say I should have bonds. You sell bonds. Um, yeah, sure. How do I know what kind of bonds I want to buy in the whole universe to offer myself protection at a time when even if Trump produced zero additional growth, growth has picked up enough to justify the higher rates that we're seeing right now? Right. Well, um, in terms of the, the types of bonds, the core strategies, for one, the anchor that I mentioned, the insurance that investors tend to need, the diversification benefits, the type of thing to stick with. 
because investors these days want to take more risk and equities have moved up significantly and if they want to stay in the car and drive and take additional risks, probably is good to be in core strategies. But there are also good income strategies that depend on investments in uh, illiquid and complex instruments. Uh, these include non-agency mortgages, subprime mortgages, for example. We would expect returns in those, and we've been investing heavily in them, to stay uh, in the mid-single digits, call it 5% or so, on a loss-adjusted hold to maturity basis. Second uh, security of, of high interest to us is the bank capital, banks in Europe. They're getting safer and safer, maybe not those in Italy, but on in general, banks are shoring up their capital levels, and that's good for capital securities, which are yielding between 7 and 9% in Europe. So we like those. And being overweight credit is a general concept, but leave some dry powder. If we had to put it on a scale of 0 to 10, how in terms of the overweight on credit, we'd probably place it around five or so because markets are somewhat fully priced for a good scenario and there'll be ups and downs naturally in markets in 2017 and beyond that one will want to take advantage of so so core strategies number one income strategies uh, secondly to, uh, complexity illiquidity good things taking advantage of volatility uh, is, is something to to do in the bond market and as an investor generally and Tony, does that change, given what you've just said in terms of the investment landscape? Does it change if the U.S. enters a trade war or something goes not to plan? I don't know if it's tariffs. I don't know if it's renegotiate, you know, messy renegotiations. Well, Francine, as you mentioned, the, the, the idea of the negative side of the Trump trade that uh, markets don't seem to be thinking about, and this is why when we say stay overweight on credit but leave dry powder – uh, we are thinking about the possibility of volatility in 2017 as markets now and then look at the negative side of, uh, or the risks, I should say, the left tail risks uh, for the uh, Trump administration. And so uh, those are things that can affect the market uh, negatively and would add to volatility. And we'll have to wait and see how the Trump administration reacts uh, to that volatility in markets and to any impact it may have on economies uh, with policies like that. And suffice it to say that it'll take many months to sort this all out. Uh, tax legislation, for example, may not be passed till next summer, and it'll take a while before markets are sure about uh, the future for uh, the economic growth in terms of not just uh, 2018, but the trajectory. Will it Will U.S. growth more permanently move higher, or will it be a 2018, 2019? 2019 Trump bump, uh, the markets will be more interested in, in what, uh, a permanent increase in growth. And the only way to get there is through high-quality spending, high-quality policies that encourage investments in the United States in educational attainment and in plants, equipment, software, and things that over the long run produce economic growth and have proven to be uh, growth producers. Uh, just uh, 30 seconds, we got the move index measure of volatility going down. I mean, it peaked on Election Day, and it's been going down since. Well, and of course, um, historically, the declines in volatility are something to be worried about. It's always, I always say, uh, beware quiet markets. One never knows what will be next. But a main goal of central bank policy, I know we're wrapping up, uh, has been to suppress volatility, and one has to question whether uh, central banks can continue to do that because there has been a shift from central bank dominance to fiscal dominance now. All right. Well, uh, as uh, 
uh, who is the guy in uh, Bugs Bunny? Um, the, the hunter, uh, Elmer Fudd, would Elmer say, Fudd. markets are very, very quiet right now. <laughs> um, not a lot sure. of trading going Good on. quote, Mike. <laughs> as uh, <laughs> as uh, we get through this holiday week between <laughs> Christmas and New Year's, a lot of people on vacation, but uh, we are seeing markets higher. You do get more movement off when you have uh, volatility uh, elevated because there are fewer people trading, but we're not seeing that so far in the markets. Tony Crescenzi is uh, with us. He's a PIPCO market strategist and portfolio manager, which means he's all about bonds. I want to go back to something you started our conversation with earlier about how when you look at the forward curve for uh, the bond markets, uh, you are not seeing the enthusiasm in fixed income for Trumponomics that you are seeing in equity. I'm looking at the uh, dot plot uh, of the Fed, which if you go to dots go on the Bloomberg, not only gives you the dot plot where the Fed essentially sees the proper setting of rate, the various members of the open market committee see the proper setting of rates, but you see where the market, the uh, overnight index swaps price out uh, interest rates for the next couple of years. And you're right. There's no real enthusiasm for Trump boosting growth significantly over where we are right now. Markets are quite familiar with the story on U.S. economic growth, which is to say there are very strong headwinds still, and even with the prospective changes in legislation, and there's doubts about what the, those legislative actions will do for, for growth on it. Permanent basis, basis. Consider demographics. Um, that's a major force in shaping economic growth globally. It's empirically shown that it can affect growth in, in, in a nation. Consider Japan, which last year saw a decline in the number of uh, persons, about a million in the population, from to, to 126 million. And the population is expected to continue contracting about a half million per year. And um, until it goes to under 100 million in 2050. It's difficult for a nation to grow when there are fewer people to produce goods and services. In the United States, the baby boomers, born, uh, people born between 1946 and 64, began turning 65, of course, that means in 2011. Uh, it's a contingent of 45 million people today that will grow to 75 million in 2029, when the last baby boomer, baby boomer that includes me, uh, will turn 65. And so the U.S. doesn't have as many people entering the labor force to produce goods and services as it used to. So when the bond market's thinking about growth prospects, it's thinking about demographic influences on growth. That's one thing. Second influence would be credit growth. Does the U.S. banking system produce the same sort of loan, loan growth that it used to? No. So this means the impulse to growth from credit won't be as strong here in Japan and Europe as it used to be. In, in Europe, it had negative growth in loans through last year. Now it's up just 1.5% or so year over year. It used to grow in the high single digits. So the credit story isn't as favorable. But the biggest thing is productivity. Companies, government uh, haven't been investing in people and in stuff. The sources of productivity are three. It's people, human capital, the skills that people bring to the table. Secondly, it's stuff, it's plants, equipment, software, infrastructure. And third, total factor productivity, they call it, how it all gets used. How do we use this stuff and people's skills? In the data, it shows that the middle part, capital intensity, it's called, the stuff part, has declined on a year-over-year -year basis for the first time in over 60 years. In other words, uh, companies have fewer things in place per unit of labor, and the nation as a whole does. So a company five years ago that had 100 employees and 50 computers, 
today may have, based on these data, first decline in over 60 years, uh, 100 people and 48 computers, uh, fewer things in place per unit of labor. And so markets, so the bond market's saying that until these things, until that changes, it can't overwhelm these other headwinds. And so why not then price in a lower than historical federal funds rate, policy rate for the Fed and markets are priced for, Mike, you said, uh, you looked at the dot plot and the OIS, as it's called, uh, the markets are priced for a 2% policy rate in the year 2020. Historically, the neutral rate, where the Fed's neither pressing on the gas or the brakes, is four and a quarter. So this is well below normal for a neutral rate. And it's not even a tight rate. Remember, the Fed raised the funds rate to five and a quarter last time around, and when it raised rates uh, from 2004 to 2006. This is a very subdued picture on growth in the bond market. So when you think Dow 20,000, take a look at the bond market and what it's priced for a few years hence. Tony, if you look at the spread, for example, between, uh, let's say, the 10-year bond and Treasury yields, right? So that spread has peaked for the moment. I think it, it winded, I'm looking, December 27 to a record 235 mm -hmm. basis points. Can that spread become bigger next year? It could widen, but we wouldn't expect it to widen by much. And it much depends on the viewpoint on U.S. growth and whether the view on the path for rates in the United States changes, and it depends in part on the toughness that the Fed shows toward inflation. When there's fear in the streets of the bond market, the bond market needs a cop on the beat, and that cop on the beat is Janet Yellen and the Fed. Otherwise, bond market vigilantes emerge, which is to say bond investors take matters into their own hands and tighten policy for the Fed by raising rates higher than otherwise. So if the Fed is vigilant in 2017 and addresses the inflation fears developing in the bond market, that'll limit the spread between U.S. yields and foreign yields. If the Fed is tough on inflation, if it keeps controls the view on the path for rates, the destination point, which is that 2% level for 2020, then uh, the spread will be kept low. And remember, investors globally, we know this PIMCO has offices in 13 countries, visited many of them. Um, investors there are very, very keen and interested in, in, in uh, buying bonds that are higher yielding than those in their country. And so uh, investors in Japan and Europe will be looking to the United States to invest here if yields uh, spreads widen. And, and uh, one final point, uh, for the Japanese investor, yields at the start of the year, switching from a 10-year JGB, Japanese government bond, to the 10-year treasury, uh, the, the pickup was about 100 basis points after including hedging costs to the Japanese investor to hedge their yen back into the dollars they buy back into yen. It went to zero in the summer. It's part of the reason why U.S. treasury yields rose. But now it's back up to about 80, 90 basis points. So they can pick up uh, additional incremental yield now. And so it's part of the reason for the stability uh, in yields after the big jump in yields recently is that the yields after hedging costs are considered for foreign investors look better. And so we're, see, we're seeing, again, uh, their interest develop. What happens for um, the corporate market in uh, 2017 with the rates rising? Uh, are we going to see borrowers step back? You're correct, Mike. In fact, a key f factor we consider in uh, the outlook for corporate bonds is uh, these technical factors. And because yields have increased and because companies had been expecting the possibility of a yield increase uh, and took advantage of it by borrowing more heavily in 2016 than they otherwise would have, uh, this means the amount of supply of corporate bonds in 2017 
may decline uh, relative to 2016 in terms of new issuance. A technical factor will be very beneficial to a corporate bond market that is of keen interest to foreign investors. And so it's one reason to stay optimistic about credit and be overweight on credit in 2017 is this technical force and will remain a technical force as yields rise. One other point, in the high yield bond market, very, very few bonds mature. Uh, it's a very positive technical. In the next three years, under 10% of the entire universe of high yield bonds matures because many companies have termed out the debt and pushed the debt wall maturity far out into about 2020. And so that's a positive technical that makes short-dated high yield very attractive. Tony, is there something, so we talk a lot about, you know, creating jobs, reflating, spending on infrastructure. Is there anything that President-elect Donald Trump can do to actually make the U.S. more productive or, or at least, you know, try and fix that productivity puzzle? Yes. For one, encourage, uh, give, uh, provide incentives to companies to invest in capital equipment that uh, over the long run will mean uh, more output per hour. Uh, secondly, the spending that the U.S. engages in directly uh, rather than through private sources is going to be need be of high quality. So investors should focus on not just the quantity of money that is set to be spent on infrastructure, but the quality. In 2009, about $50 billion was spent on infrastructure in, in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Uh, it was felt that it was of low quality, went toward making roads nicer, but didn't really provide for more output. And also money was that was spent, states would otherwise have spent. So it was merely a, it was a substitution effect there. And so, it, the, so it's a very big challenge for the Trump administration to produce high quality spending. Someone is going to have to watch over how the money is spent rather than how much. And that's the key uh, to the outlook for, for productivity right. and growth and even interest rates uh, in the future. Tony Crescenzi of PIMCO, uh, thanks for stopping in this morning. I know you're here to get uh, some good Brooklyn pizza. hope you are able to do that on your travels. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. All right, and now on to the tweet. <laughs> Because we're always on tweet watch, right, Mike, especially when it comes to the president-elect. This is his latest one. He talks about President Obama. This is after, I guess it started on Sunday. Was it Sunday, Mike, where President Obama was talking about the fact that, that uh, had he been running instead of Hillary Clinton, he probably would have won again. I went back and listened to the interview twice. It was actually uh, more thoughtful than a lot of the media portrayed it to me. Anyways, the latest uh, Donald Trump tweet says this. It was posted a couple of minutes ago. He says, doing my best to disregard the many inflammatory President O, so President Obama, statements and roadblocks, thought it was going to be a smooth transition. Not. That's in capital letters, exclamation mark. This, again, my concern in this, Mike, is that this does not seem 
like a president that is trying to unify the country, right? We were talking uh, to a guest a little bit earlier on saying we should ignore Wall Street, should not take uh, too much notice of his tweets, but he is someone that has to, at the end of the day, govern um, and govern well many different political factions, and he seems at the moment a little bit thin-skinned. A little bit? (laughs) He seems uh, (laughs) rather thin-skinned, and uh, he continues tweets, another one coming out now, um, complaining about the the president and uh, his uh, abstention on the uh, Israel-UN vote the other day. So um, you want to follow the president-elect? you got to get yourself a Twitter account, I guess. Uh, One of the things that Donald Trump has made uh, very clear is that uh, he thinks the U.S. intelligence community is not worth uh, dealing with. He doesn't want the presidential briefings, and uh, he says he does not trust the CIA, the DIA, and uh, the other elements of our uh, national security um, and national intelligence operations. Uh, John Nixon is a former CIA senior analyst who says... uh, that maybe Mr. Trump has a point. He's written a new book called Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. Mr. Nixon was a basically the CIA's uh, Hussein expert, and when they captured the man, they sent him in to interrogate him, and he found that much of what the agency was telling the president of the United States was wrong. Welcome to uh, Surveillance, Mr. Nixon. Um, you describe a CIA that uh, does not do a particularly good job, or at least did not, uh, around that issue. Yes. um, You know, working on Iraq, we were constrained by sometimes having very uh, bad sources of information. Uh, Overall, we understood the sort of general arc of Saddam's career and his life and what he had done. But there were many of the sort of granular details that we were in the dark about. And uh, it it was pretty shocking when I started to debrief him to learn some of these. Do you think, John, this has changed? Has it changed? Has either the, the, you know, the operatives or the the way that communication um, between CIA and and the president changed? Well, um, unfortunately, I would say no. I think that there are still problems in terms of analysis and in collection, and some of it is not the CIA's fault. Uh, For example, you know, if you don't have a presence in a country, it's very hard to get information sometimes, and and information that's good and reliable. So that's one thing. Uh, One of the things that is the CIA's fault is sometimes its analysis is very watered down, uh, because especially in the last 10 years, I mean, the CIA has been like a pinata for policymakers to kind of take wax at, and... You know, uh, it, it just sort of, at that point, just sort of hunkers down and takes the blows. But the, 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 the analysis itself gets kind of watered down and is not that good because the CIA doesn't want to be, you know, blamed for making mistakes. Um, in fairness, I will say this. Intelligence is not a, something that is 100%, 100% right all the time. And contrary to popular opinion, we don't have a, scene, a, 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 you know, a crystal ball in the basement. But, you know, we, we can often give policymakers a fairly good range of what might happen and what they can expect. 
Um, and sometimes it's policymaker pro- problems that really are at fault because they do think that somehow, you know, we can predict the future. John Dixon was a senior leadership analyst with the CIA from 1998 to 2011, regularly wrote for and briefed the most senior levels of U.S. government. He's written a book about his experience uh, in Iraq, debriefing the president, the interrogation of Saddam Hussein, in which he is critical of the CIA's efforts to understand what is going on in Iraq. Although uh, you are not a, 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 a wholesale critic of uh, the agency, uh, as we were just talking about. So I'm wondering, uh, from what we never quite know what the president-elect is thinking, but from what he has tweeted and said, um, do you think his distrust, dislike, and disinterest in uh, the intelligence community is justified? Uh, no, uh, I think that I think that it's very. I'm very disturbed that there is this clash that appears to be happening between the president-elect and the CIA. Um, the, 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 the irony here is that both sides need each other. Uh, the president is going to need good information in order to make decisions, and the CIA needs to have the president's trust and backing in, in carrying out its mission. Uh, and if a wall is, and I hate to use this metaphor um, for obvious reasons, but if a wall comes up between the president and his intelligence community, that will that will just uh, the only people that will benefit from that are enemies. And that's what they really would like to see happen. Um, the thing is, the intelligence community really can, for someone like Donald Trump, who doesn't have a, a, a steep background in foreign affairs, um, the intelligence community actually can help him in terms of getting up to speed and understanding some of the issues that will con- confront him in the next four years. And I get nervous when I hear him say things like, well, you know, I'm a smart guy and I already know things and uh, I'll just, you know, if I need to hear from them, I'll, I'll ask them. Um, you really need to be engaged in, in and get your briefing every day so that you can understand what's going on. It's a very complex world out there. And if you just jump into something when it's at a crisis point, you're, you're probably not going to uh, come up and make the right decision. You know, if I can sort of come back to the book, that's sort of the way Saddam Hussein operated in his government. He didn't have regular briefings. He didn't he didn't have an intelligence community that was daily serving his needs. Um, and a lot of times, he when he asked a question, when he did ask a question, he would get back the answer that they thought he wanted to hear. And you know, he made a series of bad mistakes, chief among them the invasion of Kuwait in 1990. And you know, something um, uh, I, I I think if Donald Trump wants to avoid derailing his presidency, he, he really should try to develop a relationship with the intelligence community. John, congratulations on your book. It's a great book and also an extremely important book because of what we're talking about with the president-elect Donald Trump. But actually, in your book, right, you write that the agency, no matter who the president is, will almost want to give him the answer that he wants to hear. So actually, with the dysfunctional or the fact that Donald Trump is now calling the agency dysfunctional, do you not see any hope that that this gets severed, that actually we find a, a much more stable and fruitful working relationship between the president, any president, and the CIA? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that somehow they'll... Right now, 
right now the CIA is trying to probably is probably trying to figure out how best that they can serve his needs. Uh, and you know there are things that he has said that maybe might be able to they might be able to sort of get themselves in the door with him, which is you know he said he doesn't want to read the same thing every day. Okay, well that's one indication. So they might not give him the same like they might not give him the same topic every day. And they also know that he wants to look at he he likes Twitter and he probably likes his information these small little tweet like messages. That's unfortunate, but you know that might be another way to kind of communicate with him. Um, I, it still remains to be seen how this gets worked out. Um, but for all of its shortcomings, and you know the CIA has many shortcomings, and, and I chronicle some of them in the book. But the thing is, you know, you can't try that. You can't say to yourself, "Okay, I know what Iran is doing. I know what the Supreme Leader is up to." If you're not getting some, if you don't have some sort of grounding in the intelligence and some sort of grounding in the context and the history of what has happened before, because if you don't do that and you say, I'm going to make decision A based on because I'm a smart guy, it's going to be a disaster. You know, and, and really, can this country afford many more fiascos like Iraq? I don't I don't think so. Very interesting uh, story in the Washington Post yesterday, written by a former colleague of yours, Stephen Hall, a former CIA uh, official, uh, why the CIA won't want to go public with its evidence of Russia's hacking. We're going to have these committees investigating, or at least uh, maybe even one, just one super committee investigating the hacking thing. Um, Mr. Hall makes case that you know any kind of any time you give out information, you risk giving out sources and methods, and uh, sometimes the, the the cost of doing that is uh, much greater than the benefit you gain from making the information public. So, do you think we get anywhere with this Russian hacking investigation? Anywhere that would satisfy the uh, American people, uh, the, the people who believe Donald Trump when he says uh, it didn't happen, uh, can they be convinced without giving up uh, sources and methods? Well, I think there's a way to do that, and and I think the Obama administration was correct in wanting to, you know, ask tasking the intelligence community to look into this. Where I think the problem is is that all of a sudden it gets leaked. To the media before any conclusions are drawn, and then once it, once it's in sort of in, into the public realm, then it, it becomes politicized, and it becomes sort of a, a football that gets gets kicked around by commentators and politicians and what have you. And your chances of really getting at the truth at that point become very small. And I think that that's a bad thing. The politicization of intelligence has done more, I think, to harm. Our foreign policy than 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 anything in in the last decade, um, you know, because you know we the CIA really should just be this institution that just comes to the president and says, here are the facts, this is what we know, this is what we think we know, and this is what we don't know. Um, but now it's sort of like you get this browbeating from the Oval Office, and then you know the CIA gets under pressure to kind of give the give the boss what he wants, and you know it, it just it's something that snowballs, and it has a very pernicious effect on our government and the conduct of our foreign policy. John Nixon, former CIA senior analyst, uh, author of the new book Debriefing the President: The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. And I think, uh, Fran, it's very obvious that uh, what happens within the intelligence community is going to be front and center in the Trump administration.
You know, it's it's uh, absolutely fascinating, and it was great having John Nixon on. We, I wonder how much of this actually we'll find out, right? Because the CIA is always so secretive. I wonder whether Donald Trump will maybe give us more of a glimpse than previous presidents. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.